Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, joined by my co-host, Nick Polak. Nick, you weren't on the last episode of the podcast, so uh, so how are you doing? I'm good, yeah. I was super, super tired yesterday, and I know, that, I know that's not a great excuse, considering two of the three people on the podcast last night, or well, earlier in the week, um, were in Indianapolis. But while you all were in Indianapolis having a great time, I was one of the few people left at home trying to make our site great. So I was also exhausted. Yeah, so I'm okay with missing. I that can one. imagine. So yeah, how uh, how you feeling right now? Like just like I, I know you were pr- one of the more uh, level-headed fans about the whole. Listen, we need to give James Franklin time. He has to have four, you know, give him four years so we can see a recruiting class through. Blah blah blah, all that. So how how did it feel going? You know, getting to brag a little bit that you never got off the bandwagon. Uh, vindicated, for sure. Um, to be fair, that likely would have been my stance, no matter who the head coach was, really. Barring a complete disaster, I think it's kind of unfair to not give a college head coach at, like, at least four years, because that's that's the job, is recruiting and getting your guys in there. But in another way, I also felt vindicated, because when we were down 28-7 in our slack room, everyone else was ready to punch holes through their TVs, and I felt like I was really, I think Treb and I were the only ones really saying, just hold on, just we we know what this team is, so just give them a chance, give them a chance, and yeah, it was fun. Yeah, now they, uh, they took that chance, and we'll talk more about the Rose Bowl. Uh, I will talk a little bit about it on this podcast, but we'll do some more talking a little bit down the road, but for now, we figured it would be good uh, to look back on this season, look at some of the high points, and we figured what better way to do that than with an award show. And we decided that since he came on to help us preview the season, he'd be the perfect person to come on and do a review of the season. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Solid Verbal, Mr. Ty Hildenbrandt. Ty, what's going on? Gentlemen, thank you. I, I wore my tux tonight. Is oh. that okay? <laughs> uh, um, I'm in shorts and a t-shirt, so I feel kind of... Uh, I feel kind of underdressed. But, or no. Yeah, I was going to say, Nick. You got to go both for a, for a regal occasion such as this, this, uh, this award currently show, unnamed yes. Roar Lions Radio Award Show. Yes, I'm <laughs> in full regalia. I've got the tux and the bow tie. <laughs> awesome. Well, <laughs> other than the fact that you're in a suit right now, how are you doing? I'm doing well, guys. It was a fun weekend, wasn't it? That's Very one way so. of putting it, absolutely. Uh, yeah, even just out like outside of the Penn State game, there was just some... Really fun football on this weekend. Uh, Temple decided it was going to beat the hell out of Navy, which was nice. Apparent, I didn't see a second of it, but the ACC title game was pr- apparently pretty good. Alabama did Alabama things, which is interesting. And then we all got to be mad on the internet on Sunday. So I don't know how this weekend could have gone any better. It was a fun weekend. I personally enjoy people twisting themselves in knots trying to reason their way through the whole college football playoff selection process <laughs> because as you know this was this was a unique year we're only three years into this thing this was a unique year in that you had a handful of teams that could rightfully claim the three the four slot ultimately it goes to ohio state and washington but uh, a lot of interesting logic chains out there on the internet and various social media outlets to try and follow along and play along with. So that that's some of the fun you get towards the latter part of the season. And then whenever you've got some good conference championship games, especially at night to cap the whole thing off, it was uh, it was a good weekend, a, a very fitting way to close out 
the 2016 season. Definitely. And from the Penn State uh, point of view, I see no more fitting way uh, to end the season uh, than with, with some awards that pay homage to some of the greats of Nittany Lion football over the years. Uh, we don't have... Bill, Bill, Bill. That... If, we, if we have a member of the, so- of the solid verbal on right now, you can't just skip by homage without going... <laughs> Jesus. The the thing is, Nick, we don't have the capabilities for any anything fun, so I tried to leave as much fun out of this as possible. Unless you wanna like for like a nice sound thing, you just want to use the Purdue train noise uh for the duration. We of the we have we need to talk about that actually. We'll later talk about on the show. this at the end. Um Purdue um shocked the world by not hiring Pat Narduzzi and I don't know if I'll ever <laughs> get over that. Uh, but for now. But for now, let's talk we have nine awards. Um, it's going to be a fun episode. I hope we all enjoy it. And when I think of fun and I think of things that I enjoy, I think of Matt McGloy. So our first award, and Nick, you can lead this one off. Who wins the Matt McGloy Award for Surprise Player of the Year? So I'm going to start off. I'm going to go a little outside the box. Obviously, there's a lot of players you could choose for this award. But I'm going to go ahead and say Brendan Mann. Okay. A lot of, uh, and I wrote about this earlier, Brendan Mann has kind of been scrutinized a good deal during his first couple seasons in Happy Valley. He came in as a four-star recruit. Uh, He came in with Christian Hackenberg and Garrett Sickles and all those guys. Came in as a four-star recruit, didn't really do a ton. Uh, Began starting as a redshirt freshman, started all through his redshirt sophomore year as well, and just always kind of seemed to be that guy that the staff was willing to just toss wherever on the line. And he just never really seemed to find a home outside of actually the uh, Ohio State game that Penn State lost two years ago in double overtime in Happy Valley, where man actually played right tackle. And that was really where he seemed to be at his best. At that point, it it kind of just seemed like a fluke because he didn't seem particularly quick on the outside. It didn't seem like a great fit. And coming into the season, when we found out that he was going to be the starting left tackle, I think a lot of the feeling around it was, boy, that seems like it's just kind of a desperation move. And there's just a lot of speculation that, all right, I guess this means there's no one else better at that spot. Paris Palmer wasn't able to take over that left tackle spot. So we're kind of stuck here with man. And he was outstanding. I mean, I, he's missed the last uh, three games, I think, three or four games with an undisclosed Something injury. Like but he graded out as the top offensive tackle by the pro football focus metrics two weeks in a row. And he was a really, really consistent player all season long, whether he was on the left side or the right side. And his kind of research or his coming out as a player was kind of the reason that this offensive line was so resurgent and really turned into, I don't want to say a strength, but a definite, like, solid, solid part of this team that allowed the offense to kind of open up on those big plays that they kind of became their bread and butter. So I have to give it to Brendan Mann. It, it went from the weakness to really end all weaknesses to something that was competent, which for Penn State's offensive line, I mean, coming into this season, I think we all said we just want an offensive line that isn't going to isn't going to let everyone into the backfield within two seconds after snapping the ball, and they've managed to do that. And, yeah, Maine's definitely been a big part of it. Uh, Ty, who do you think gets this one? i got to give some props here to the the, uh, 
find a gentleman they call Hands, one by the name of uh, Mike Gasecki. I'd like to reiterate for you guys what his stats were from 2014 and 2015. Combined, he had, I believe, 24 total catches for a combined yardage of 239. This season, he closed out the year 47 catches, 668 total yards, and four touchdowns. He had a huge catch, obviously, in the Big Ten Championship game. He became a go-to guy in a number of clutch situations. And this is a guy I, I seem to remember quite well, people making fun of his hands a year ago, making oh, fun yes. of the fact oh, he's, he's a big dude, 6'6", like 250, he can't catch, can't catch. Um, he's coming back next year. He's going to have an even better year. And if this year was any kind of sign of things to come, um, to have a really big, reliable tight end in an offense like Penn State has developed, that's a weapon. That's a weapon. So I don't know if anyone saw Gasecki coming this year. Yeah, I mean, we, I, Nick and I were both fairly high on Gasecki, but we were also putting a lot of faith in just the fact that you know it couldn't be much worse than it was last year. Just from like a, you know, bringing the ball in perspective. And yeah, he's been great. I love to Malik Golden. I mean, coming into this year, uh, I think a lot of people were so used to the Malik Golden of the last few years where he would just kind of be a rotational guy. He'd never do anything great. It seemed like the only times we noticed him uh, were when he was doing something really bad. And that happened every, uh, a little more frequently than you'd want out of a safety. Uh, but he's... He's been great this year. I mean, he's been the perfect guy lining up next to Marcus Allen. He kind of can clean things up while Allen just roams around and raises hell in the box. Uh, he's been fine in coverage. He's been able to wrap up some dudes as they're uh, as they're breaking through into that last as that last line of defense. So, yeah, go Malik Golden. That was a that, that an awesome year for you, really, and hopefully. Uh, Hopefully the next person that I'm not as high on uh, in the future plays as well as he did because that was quite the year out of him. Next up, uh, we decided we wanted to name a second award after Matt McGloin because if anyone deserves multiple awards named after them, it's Matt McGloin. This is the Matt McGloin Award for Offensive Player of the Year. And Ty, I think Saquon Barkley is, of course, the guy that everyone's going to go to. Is there someone else that you think can take the award for him in the like justified way, or is it Saquon Barkley? Uh, no reason to put too much thought into this. We can move on to the next thing. O- offensive player of the year. Yep. Named after Matt McGloin. If you're talk, if you're going to name an award after <laughs> Matt McGloin, all right, let's, let's pause here for a second. If we could, well, we're naming you're multiple name... awards after Matt McGloin. Just to be just, to no, be I'm looking at the list here. I see this. This is like <laughs> the Matt McGloin sponsored award show. If you're going to name an award show or an award or anything after Matt McGloin, you need to at least have some consideration for what they call a moxie. We need moxie if we're going to talk about Matty Mox here. All right. Uh, I could think of one competitor, and I love Saquon Barkley. I'm a huge Saquon Barkley fan. But uh, Trace Mox Sorley might have something to say about not being uh, a front runner in this category, Offensive Player of the Year, with the way he came on. Yeah, uh, that yeah. makes sense. Um, before we continue with anything else, can we have a very serious discussion about how Gus Johnson was doing everything in his power to nickname Trace McSorley the Wizard on Saturday night? Oh, even I, oh he was trying I, to. I, you know I what he was he doing, it. guys? He was he was trying to do the old Brent Musburger. 
I don't know. Brent Musburger is like the greatest ever oh, when yeah. it comes to oh, calling games. And uh, I remember way back when we first started our podcast back in like 08, there were a bunch of sites on the internet that would chronicle the Brent Musburger drinking game. Because at the time, <laughs> you could like, you could, this is a true thing. Go, go and Google Brent Musburger oh, drinking okay, game. Okay, okay. You'll be drunk five minutes into the first half. But he <laughs> would come up with a pet nickname for his favorite players. He would always do things like reference the point spread. He'd always talk about, you know, when he still was with Jack Aroot, he would always reference his old buddy Jack Aroot. But the one thing that he loved doing was giving a guy a pet nickname. And I remember Major <laughs> Applewhite, Major Applewhite, excuse me, was the major. He had like a whole litany of different nicknames that he would give people. And that was what I said to my friends that I was watching the game on Saturday night. Oh my God, Gus Johnson's going Musburger here by calling him the wizard. <laughs> I've not heard the wizard before. I loved it, but uh, that was a stroke of brilliance. Yeah, like, I found a Sports Illustrated article with the Musburger drinking game, and there it's drink five invents a special nickname for a player, i.e. 2003 Kansas State running back Darren Sproles became the little tank. <laughs> that might have been my article, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's um. <laughs> It, it's like a storied part of college football lore that is underreported because, you know, it's a drinking game and Brim Musker's yeah, yeah, not yeah. calling the biggest game. This is, this is your article. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Believe me, I, I paid special attention to it. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. That's I mean, great. like, I, I know that we have kind of jokingly tried to get the nickname All the Marbles, uh, have that become McSorley's nickname. The Wizard is a new one, and I love it so very much. Even though, like, it was a, it was a very ham fisted like attempt at giving McSorley a nickname, which I mean, a, a, according to our friends over at MGO Wars, we're trying our hardest to make the word tutties a thing. So, like, take this with a grain of salt. But yeah, there were uh, it was fantastic. I have never again never heard that one, and I want it to be a thing forever and ever. Uh, yeah, Nick. The best, the best oh, one ahead. was just on one of the deep balls. He goes, McSorley, the wizard. Pause, pause, pause. Oh, no. Of he... Camelot. <laughs> yeah, he was uh... the thing. The thing is, when you when you hear that Gus Johnson's calling a game, you know it's going to tighten up. Yeah. You knew, you knew when it was 28-7 it was going to tighten up. He just has a track record. He, him and Joe Tess, oh, when yeah. those guys are calling games, they just have a funny knack of tightening up late. And becoming very exciting down the stretch, and it, you know, obviously, it happened in a good way for Penn State. Yeah, and for I, I love that about Gus. Like he's he's not the kind of guy you want calling. Like there there have been times in the past where Gus has called Penn State basketball games, which that may be the worst mix of announcer and thing <laughs> to announce. But when he is in his wheelhouse, which is a game like this where one team just comes back from nowhere by throwing deep ball after deep ball and getting touchdowns. Like, that's the perfect use of his abilities. Uh, I, I do question his ability to come up with nicknames, obviously, but it was still fun. Uh, Nick, d are, are you going to just ride with Saquon, or are you also, uh, are you also giving it to uh, the Wizard, as he's now known? <laughs> uh, honestly, I'd be good with either one. Tra uh, I mean, Saquon Barkley for the majority of the season was the team. But I think it says something that the Penn State offense turned around when McSorley started running the ball. And while I think offensive player of the year and key to the offense are slightly different things. That's fair. Um, I, 
if it's key to the offense, then I'd say Big Sorley in a heartbeat. But I I think the last few games where I'm with the offensive line kind of makeshift at this point. Um, or uh, Barkley didn't really get the same kind of blocking he was used to, so his production took a little bit of hit towards the end there. So I think it's important to remember how awesome Saquon Barkley was for the majority of this season and how integral he is to this team because even when he's not running teams are scared of him running so oh, yeah I, i'm i'm gonna give it to saquon yeah things open up in the passing game because teams are just completely selling up out also because you know the receivers are fantastic but teams are so afraid of saquon destroying them that they sell out hard against that and mcsorley's done a great job taking advantage of that i mean that's basically the reason why i'm a i, I will say saquon because teams while teams, of course, game plan around McSorley, above everything else, they don't want Saquon Barkley beating them. If you're giving teams the, it seems like if you're giving teams the option of, you know, McSorley could throw for 300 yards or Barkley could run for 120, they're taking the former every, the former every single time, which is just a testament to how outstanding Saquon Barkley is. So that one, I think has, like, I think that has to go to him. He rules. He's, I mean, Dennis Dodd has, uh, he cast a third place Heisman vote for. One Trace McSorley, which is mm, that's a that's a bold one there, Dennis. But it's Saquon. Saquon is the heartbeat of this offense. And then the other side for the Lavar Arrington Award for Defensive Player of the Year. I think that goes to the guy who was the heartbeat of the defense. That's Brandon Bell, who is just a monster. We saw that this defense just take on a different life once he got back from. Uh, getting knocked up a little bit. He was outstanding against Ohio State, really just down the stretch. If there was a guy anywhere near him, he was tackling him. That strip sack he had on Bart Houston, I've watched that maybe 20 times, and like half of them I'm convinced that he kind of just levitates after he jumps over uh, whoever Wisconsin's running back was. He's, he's just great. He's awesome, and I'm very upset that we're not going to see him in a Penn State uniform after this year because he's going to get paid a lot of money in the NFL. Uh, Nick, what about yourself? So my my pick is Brandon Bell <clears throat> for pretty much all the reasons that you said. Despite missing uh, four games, I think he missed. Like still that. came very close to leading the team tackles. Ended up with four sacks. He had an interception. Forced three fumbles. And that <laughs> that forced fumble where he jumped over the running back was one of the most vicious. Yeah. like attacks on a quarterback without like murdering the quarterback was one of the most vicious plays I've seen in a quarterback. Just his entire body weight just came squarely down on the ball. And it was, it was awesome to watch. Um, I think an underrated name though, that is not the first name that would come to mind for anyone, but was really important this season was Manny Bowen. Yeah. So Bowen is a true sophomore this year. He was pretty, he was the only, I mean, he wasn't a starting linebacker at the beginning of the year because Naeem Wartman-White was still healthy. But when Wartman-White went down, Bowen and Bowen was already rotating regularly as a fourth linebacker at that point anyway. But Bowen is really the only guy who is a core starter or just off the starting lineup for the linebacker unit that didn't get hurt. And he got moved everywhere. He played both. He played both outline, outside linebacker spots. He played in the middle a little bit. But he was their emergency plan at middle linebacker as well. And he was just really consistent all year. He had a few mo- moments where you realize, all right, yeah, this guy's still just a sophomore. Like he over pursued a few times, but he made an impact. He had eight and a half tackles for loss, two sacks, two pass breakups, ended with fifty-one tackles. Like 
he was a very, very good player for Penn State this year. And he's kind of the reason that, yeah, missing Brandon Bell next year is going to suck, but I am pretty confident that Manny Bowen's going to help us get over that a yeah. little bit. Yeah, uh, Ty, yourself? Yeah, I mean, Manny Bowen's uh, an interesting name. And I, I don't know if you mentioned this, Nick. I, you, you broke up a little bit on me here through the old uh, Skype machine. But um, I, I might be a little hazy on the stats, but he was like second or, or tied for second in tackles for loss for Penn State this year. He was someone who played pretty well on the other side of the line of scrimmage, which is something that they needed, obviously, from a bunch of different positions because they were so injured. Brandon Bell is, is the name that you guys have thrown out. And when he came back from injury, it, it certainly changed things in a very good way for Penn State's defense. They needed that veteran presence there to kind of make the rest of it work as well as it ended up working. Uh, one name that you haven't mentioned, and I understand why he may not win your LeVar, why he may not win, excuse me, your your award for the LeVar Arrington Defensive Player of the Year. But um, how about a shout out for Marcus Allen? Yep, from the yeah. safety position, he's coming back next year. Um, you know, ten percent of the team's tackles, something crazy like that. Um, you know, no sacks, no interceptions, but just a, a force. Pretty good when it came to making the important tackle. And, um, you know, maybe not quite the sex appeal of what a Brandon Bell had for this defense, but certainly noteworthy in his own right. Then, of course, there's also Jason Cabinda, who's not getting it. But uh, that dude, I I mean, Brandon Smith played really, really well, like to the point that I thought he should have gotten a a fair amount of run once uh, even when Cabinda came back. And then Cabinda came back and he just lit the world on fire. he, it kind of got overshadowed by Bell coming back, but he was fantastic as well. So uh, the whole linebacker you think was certainly on display this year. That was fun. Uh, let's get to the point where we talk about kickers and punters and whatnot with the Sam Ficken Award for Special Teams Player of the Year. Uh, I have a bunch of dudes who I want to shout out here. Picking one's going to be really tough, and whenever I'm struggling with something, I have Nick go first so I can have more time. So Nick, go ahead. I'll take the easy answer, and I'll say Tyler Davis. Okay. <clears throat> early in the year, um, when Penn State's off, well, not even early in the year, let's just say in the early portion of games, when Penn State's offense hadn't really been able to score, Tyler Davis was always there. He only missed two field goals on the season. He didn't miss an extra point. For a college kicker, That's those are pretty incredible numbers. And I forget who was tossing around in the slack, but somebody said he needs something like only eight or nine more kicks to qualify for the all-time leader for Penn State field goal kicking percentage, and he's so far and away ahead of everybody else. And it it hasn't been with an extremely high degree of difficulty. They don't ask him to do a whole lot outside of uh, 40 yards, if ever. But there's something to be said for giving your head coach the confidence that he knows he can send you out there and he's going to get a successful field goal 92% of the time. And Tyler Davis deserves, deserves some major props. Yeah, I mean, good kickers get underrated. Like I will forever think this. Like We take for granted the fact that Penn State's run of kickers between Sam Ficken once he you know, got on track and Tyler Davis has been, and even dating back to guys before them, has been really good. So... Like, yeah, Davis is definitely a guy who deserves some love. Uh, Ty, who do you want to give it to? You guys got to give it to Joey Julius, man. Damn it, Ty. 
Jim, I, the I wanted, I wanted to be the one. 258, all Penn State everything. He's the he's only player who went viral. Yeah, I mean, he's got what? Um, 48% touchback percentage, something uh, something like that. Um, Tyler Davis didn't miss an extra point this year. And missed like two field goals. Like you said, Nick, made 92%. Clearly, if we're looking at this seriously, that's a weapon. Penn State had a kicker that they could rely on. And you're right, they didn't ask him to do a whole lot. But still, to put up those kind of numbers, uh, to be reliable, to know that they've got him in the holster again for another year, that's, that, that's pretty good to lean on. But Joey Julius and uh, the attention that he brought to not only his own story, but kickers and their role on kickoff coverage... Yep. To me, it was a lot of fun to follow this year. He yeah. laid some people out to the point where people were trying to lay him out. Yeah. So people in terms were, yeah. of in terms of general interest and, and drumming up a storyline, the answer is Joey Julius. People were headhunting a kickoff specialist, which is just ridiculous. And he and it was awesome. Yeah, like you said, his personal story was very important. He became he became something of a national name as a dude who just did kickoffs. Uh, I'm going to give the, the award instead since he didn't get any love to Blake Gillikin, just because I've watched Penn State try and punt the football over the last couple of years. And um, now that we have someone who's really good in Blake Gillikin, that's awesome. Uh, when, when, yeah, like, it's just ridiculous. I think that we like to joke a lot about punting and how important it is and blah, 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 all that. But now that Penn State has an actual dang weapon as a punter, that's something that's really great. And he's a guy that over the next three years is just going to get better. And he's just going to switch the field and do all these awesome things. And it's going to be really, really great to watch. And he showed us why this year he was, Nick, he was the number one or two or three recruit in the country at punt or something like that. Um, I can check. I forget. He was top three. Like, yeah, you know, don't worry. 50, 56 punts, an average of 42 yards, and 66% of his punts were either fair caught or inside the 20 yard line. And correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't his longest 69 yard kick? Yes. That's all that I know that by heart. Yes, so do I. Yes, uh, and he was also the number two punter. Okay, awesome. So, yeah, lots of good specialists. All of them are coming back. It's a very good thing. Uh, let's talk about someone who didn't come back, although that wasn't for uh, that. That was more because Bill O'Brien left. Uh, the John Butler Award for Coach of the Year. Uh, Penn, James Franklin's built up one hell of a coaching staff. Um, I think I have my guy in mind, but Ty, I want to hear what you think. So now, is this? Are we allowed to go James Franklin here, or is this assistant yeah, ahead, coach? Because go ahead. I think I think to some degree. We need to we need to just assume that James Franklin needs to have some share of this award. James Franklin was a punching bag after losing by 39 to Michigan earlier this year. And I'm sure you guys talked about it. I know we talked about it on our on our pod. I mean, he was hot seat. He, He was hot seat. He was controversy. He was all the things that Penn State fans didn't want. And many people had even written him off for dead at that point. Because it really didn't look like things were going in a good direction. But I think he deserves a lot of credit for the way he was able to rally the troops. Obviously, in hindsight, he deserves a ton of credit for how he reassembled his coaching staff. Um, you know, not only 
by promoting Brent Pry, but certainly by going out and hiring Joe Moorhead, who was terrific, who I'm sure one of you guys is going to mention. Uh, Matt Limegrover bringing him over immediately after he lost his job at Minnesota. He had a positive impact on the offensive line. Um, you know, it's easy to go Joe Mo. It's easy to go Lime Grover or any of the other assistants on the staff. But I really do think we owe an apology and a, a modicum of gratitude to James Franklin for the kind of season he put together, how he was able to rally the troops and really get them motivated to rip off nine straight wins. That was that was an impressive showing. He's squarely off the hot seat at this point. And I think Penn State fans need to take a, a big sigh of relief now and, and feel good about where this program's headed. Definitely, definitely. I, like, Franklin is, you know what's weird? There have just been so many great coaches on Penn State's raw coaching staff this year that, I, you know, we view Franklin as kind of the CEO of the team, the guy, he's a bit hands-off in terms of in-game stuff. But like you said, Ty, He's the one who ultimately brought this all together. So he's the one who, who at the end of the day, I think, yeah, he he's he's the coach of the. I mean, the dude's the national coach of the year. He might as well be the Penn State coach of the year. Uh, and, and here's a, here's oh, the thing, ahead. not not to cut you oh, off, go but ahead. you know, like <laughs> there are different kinds of coaches out there. No one's ever going to confuse James Franklin with like this master tactician. That's just not that's not what he does. He's a program builder. To some degree, he's a snake oil salesman, all right? He's a hell of a recruiter. He gets people jazzed up to come and play for Penn State or wherever. And, um, you know, he, he's a kind of guy who uh, I know up until at least last year, his assistants were very loyal to. They respect working for James Franklin. Yeah. And so to have this mass exodus away from his program, uh, the way we saw last year in terms of the assistants, that, that was tough for him. I believe that was tough for him. And this year was a fine testament to what he can do if he has the opportunity to start fresh, to hit the reset button, and to try and hire the best assistants that he thinks can help lead him to the promised land. He did a great job assembling a new cast of assistants here, and he, he's got to be the pick. He's got to be yeah. the pick for uh, John Butler Coach of the Year. We're, yes. we're to give the John Butler Award to James Franklin. <laughs> I will say, but uh, yeah. if anyone, it's got to be it's got to be Franklin. And uh, because someone's going to mention this, uh, there's a very obvious reason this is not after named after John Donovan, and that is I want to forget that he was ever a coach at Penn State. Um, for me, I think it's Franklin definitely, but I want to. I, I we need to give a shout out to Sean Spencer, um, Penn State's yeah. defensive line. We can't say this enough. It had to replace three dudes to the NFL at once. That you just don't see that outside of like at Alabama. Spencer was able to step in, coach up some dudes who, I, I mean, I don't think anyone really on Penn State's starting line outside of maybe uh, Garrett Sickles was considered, you know, a can't miss recruit or anything like that. And he's molded them into a unit. That second half against Wisconsin, they just like they decided that they weren't going to get pushed around by the Wisconsin front anymore. Which, considering what happened against uh, Pitt when Pitt's offensive line was basically laughing at everyone and just throwing that, like digging the ditches and throwing them into the dirt, it was amazing to watch this turnaround. And over the coach, uh, course of the year, we've seen this 
because Spencer has just done a fantastic job with this unit. I've said this on the pod before, but I was at Media Day, and I overheard Spencer and Parker Cawthorn talk about this line and how it had the unenviable task of replacing three uh, dudes who went to the NFL. This group was confident that it was one of, if not the best defensive lines in the nation on media day this year before we saw a single game and before we knew what before we knew what Garrett Sickles was going to be as the guy on the defensive line, what Evan Schwan was going to be going from a role player to a guy who was starting and getting consistent run. Guys like Kevin Givens, Parker Cawthron, Robert Windsor, Curtis Cawthron, all of these dudes, Sharif Miller is getting some run. Torrance Brown is getting more run than he's used to. And every single one of them stepped up in some way or another. That is insane, and we cannot give Sean Spencer enough credit for what he did with his front four. Uh, Nick, who do you want to give it to? Uh, and if you want to say Franklin as, you know, he's the guy who obviously gets it, but someone else should get it, by all means, go for it. Well, I was prepared to talk about Matt Limegrover because I assumed somebody was going to say Joe Moorhead before me. Um, yeah. So I'll just quickly say Matt Limegrover was amazing. No, no, um, what he some, was able. One of us has to fawn over uh, Coach Tuddy. So yes, I, I will. I, I just was Matt Limegrover that wasn't. I mean, what he was able to do with all the injuries they had in the offensive line and still able to make a competent line that was able to keep McSorley upright was pretty outstanding. Um, but Joe Moorhead, I mean, you can't say enough about what. He did, and I know coming into the season, one of the things that we were trying to temper expectations for was don't expect to see just a complete 180 on offense in one season. It's it doesn't it doesn't work like that. It's going to take time. Give him a chance to get the offense installed, and I I think it's safe to say that it happened a lot more quickly than we assumed it was going to. I mean the. It was a total, total transformation of the, the offense. We went from the John Donovan lineup in the lineup under center, these quick screen passes that dominated the playbook, to a complete spread style, 100% shotgun, which makes older fans want to throw things at their television. Uh, but just the complete transformation of the offense was incredible. And I know a lot of people might say, well, I mean, there is the slow starts in the first half. I don't know if he's actually been asked about it, but I'd be willing to bet that a good deal of what Penn State does in the first half is pretty scripted on the offensive side just to help them kind of gain an understanding of what the defense is going to be doing because the adjustments they're able to make in the second half are incredible. What he and McSorley and... I mean, Lime Grover is in that conversation as well. What they're able to do, the way they're able to adjust in that second half is truly, truly remarkable. And in-game, his just his flexibility and his adaptability are so impressive. In Indiana, going to something like that flea flicker game, like that flea flicker, that, that was a turning point in that game, and that was a really tough game. The innovation that he showed, I mean, he put Tommy Stevens, he put our backup quarterback lined up in the slot to take a handoff and barrel down the left side of the field. I mean, who who does that? Who puts their backup quarterback in the slot and moves in motion and takes a handoff? Like, that's the most absurd thing that I've ever seen. But it was brilliant. And it was, it was outstanding. Just everything that he did this year was inspiring to watch as a fan of football and as, just, as a fan of offense. And so, especially for somebody... 
like myself and like Penn State fans who've been watching just absolute crap on offense for multiple years now. It I think it has to be Joe Moorhead. Yeah, Yeah, let me let me add something here. Nick, you brought something up about not expecting a 180 in, in one season. We saw a 180 after the Michigan game within yep. the season. Yeah. Which yep. is incredible to me. Gone are the days of like the 43 power play where Joe is like sliding the paper to somebody up in up in the press box to run up the middle. I mean, you're right. There was creativity. There was obviously uh, an adaptability as we saw Penn State become this second half juggernaut, second half of the year. Um, a bunch of different looks. Certainly once they discovered... In the Minnesota game, that Trace McSorley could use his legs a little bit more effectively. That changed things for the better. So th- this was an incredible effort, not just from season to season, but from start of one season to finish of the season. Um, he deserves all the credit in the world. I hope they're able to hold on to him for some extended period of time because he's only 43. He doesn't look 43, but he's, he's no. a 43-year-old guy who's clearly got a ton of steam on him as a brilliant strategist, at least on the offensive side of the football and did great things over at Fordham before he came to Penn state. So um, there's a lot to be excited about if you're a Penn state fan. And I think certainly James Franklin and the Penn state administration needs to make sure that they keep him happy and keep him in state college. Yeah. And it's not like he's one of those coordinators who, uh, you know, he's never really done it before. Uh, He, He's been a coordinator his whole life, so he want, maybe he wants to be a little more selective about making sure he has the kind of job where it's a little bit easier for him to get adjusted. This dude's been a head coach before. He knows what he has to do uh, to uh, to run a football team. So, yeah, like you said, what, Sandy Barber, whatever you need to pay him, and I'm sure that in these reports about Penn State and James Franklin working on a contract, like yeah. making sure that – our, our dudes taken care of is one of the there, probably one of the three biggest things on there. They yeah. got to make sure he gets paid. What I love about his offense, and I promise you, this is the final point. What I love about his offense, we talked about the flexibility and adaptability and all that jazz. What I love about his offense more than anything is that he's never afraid to go for the throat. And when we saw yeah. it, we saw countless examples of it in the Wisconsin game. He yeah. found something that worked and he kept doing it over and over and over again. And I'm sure you guys saw the stat. At one point in the second half, McSorley was 9 for 9 for 241 yards and four touchdowns. <laughs> Which is incredible. He just kept throwing like that streak play, the skinny post play. I mean, he was he was going in deep every single play because he knew he had something. And there are a lot of coaches in college football who know that they have that play but still won't call it play in play out the way he did in that big 10 championship that was a stroke of brilliance so he deserves a ton of credit yeah yeah i mean joe moorhead's great i I, please never leave us joe uh i I actually i I want to take a step back on this one i just want nick as our recruiting guy to answer this one from the perspective of what he saw out of the kid when they were in high school so i want him to put it through that lens and how they've adjusted to college and how they've helped the team out so nick for the rob bolden award for freshman of the year who is your pick 
Uh, also, yes, Nick is giggling because he fought for this one to be in here because he he loves Rob Bolden, noted former Eastern Michigan wide receiver Rob Bolden. <laughs> no, no, he was a quarterback at Eastern Michigan. He was a wide receiver at oh, that's LSU. That's right. <laughs> he could have been a quarterback. I mean, if Purdue can have a starting quarterback at LSU, why not Rob Bolden? I think that may say a thing or two about uh, Mr. Mr. Rob's ability as a quarterback. Oh, that's mean. Sorry. So there's two guys that come to mind for me for the freshman of the, the Rob Bolden Award for freshman of the year. Um, one is Blake Gillikin. We've talked about him a lot, so I, I won't I won't harp on him. Instead, I'll focus on Connor McGovern. So Connor McGovern as uh, enrolled early, so obviously that gave him a big leg up, big leg up from the get go. But to be a true freshman and starting on an offensive line at the college level is pretty remarkable in and of itself. And he had a few freshman moments earlier in the season. There was a few, he allowed a few pressures a few times. He didn't hold his block long enough for Barkley. But by the end of the season, when he left a game due to injury, Penn state fans were like doomsday scenario. Like he was that important to the offensive line. A true freshman showed that much ability to be one of the anchors of this offensive line, which is, I mean, it's not unheard of it there. It happens every year in one place or another, but it, I, I don't know the last time it happened at Penn state that a freshman was that important to the offensive line. So, I mean, based on and one of the most remarkable things in that regard is that it, his tape this year didn't really look all that different from what he did in high school. Like, he was always just a very, very solid all-around blocker. He has a future as a center. He's going to be Penn State's starting center next year. He's very smart. He's a very um, just... I mean, I I could say every adjective. He's a very, very good football player. And Penn State is so much better for having him on that line. And just the impact he was able to make as a true freshman was remarkable. Yeah, all right, awesome. Uh, Ty, do you have anyone that you would want to add to this? No, I, I would echo the Connor McGovern sentiment, and I would just point out a few stats about Penn State's offensive line. Because as you know, in the Christian Hackenberg era and the previous two seasons of James Franklin, offensive line was really the Achilles heel. The stat that I love, I don't love, but the stat that I remember vividly from 2015, Christian Hackenberg got sacked something like 38 times. It was around 10% of his dropbacks. Um, uh, this, why did you have to mention that? Well, I mentioned that just <laughs> to contrast what Penn State did this year along the offensive line. I, maybe this yeah. is maybe we could give this award to Matt Limegrover too. Yeah, but, sure. Uh, they cut that number in about half. It was it was about five percent of the dropbacks for Trace McSorley that he got sacked. This offensive line is a unit ranked somewhere in the mid 30s in terms of allowing sacks you contrast that with what went on a year ago and it's it's like night and day so a big part of the reason why is because you had some new blood up front that you could obviously inject and expect to get some results from that just wasn't the case the previous two years so to now be able to infuse that line with some new blood um, I think that's really what's going to take Penn State to the next level if they can get more solid offensive line play next year, the year after, and so on and so forth. I think that's going to happen. That's that's part of the reason why we need to be really excited about Penn State in 2017. Though the schedule gets a little harder, the line play should improve, and I think that's going to buoy the offense even more. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Uh, I mean, 
the fact that McGovern stepped in as a true freshman when James Franklin has basically, I mean, he's sounded over the last couple of years like there are a lot of things he'd rather do than play a true freshman in the offensive line. So it's a testament to how good this dude is that he was able to step in and be a very solid uh, defensive, not defensive lineman, that would have been very impressive. Offensive lineman from day one. So, yeah, shout out Connor McGovern. Uh, we won't go into redshirt freshman. Ryan Bates, too. And Ryan Bates. I know Ryan, I know he's a redshirt freshman, but Ryan Bates deserves love as well. Yeah, I didn't want to go too deep into the redshirt freshman because then we, you know, then we start giving love to, you know, Irvin Charles for making the play that may have saved Penn State season. But we'll get to that in a second. Actually, let's maybe get to that right now. Uh, let's see. Let me just mark down when we're saying this so I can censor it. Okay, the Bunch of Fuckers Award for Moment of the Year. Ty, yeah! Yeah! Ty, go ahead. Well, I know you've got another award on here uh, for Play of the Year, but I'm content going both awards to the same player. The Grant Haley block. The block of the field goal. Yes. Yep. That to me. That, that like, wins everything. That was the best. <laughs> that was so awesome. I know, like, whatever you, a bunch of whatevers. I mean, that, that to me was just, like, the ultimate in this team is not going to quit. This team's going to find a way against all odds to make this happen. It would have done Bill O'Brien proud to see the way that team fought in that Ohio State game. Another situation where it looked like they were dead to rights. It looked like they were dead to rights. You look at that first half, the way they were able to flip the switch in the second half, and and get strong play from their defense. Um, that to me was like the ultimate in grit in the 2016 season to be able to pull off that play. And so that for me, that's my favorite moment by far. All right. Yeah. That's uh, it's going to be hard to top that one. Uh, Nick, what do you think? So when I think about the, when I think about this moment, when I think about Bill O'Brien dishing that quote out to me, it was, it was a mixture of, my God, I can't believe this just happened. And obviously these kids are a bunch of fighters. And then a little bit of just like exasperation, like, oh, like, my God, like we finally did it. Like it's over. We won that game. So for me, I think that's going to have to be the fourth down stop in the Big Ten championship game, Mm. because that was like the the piece de resistance of what was a hard fought, just gritty, gritty comeback effort. Obviously, we're down 28-7 to Wisconsin to come all the way back and then to have it effectively end on such a, I mean, again, Marcus Allen and Grant Haley combined both times for the two biggest plays of the year. Just the way Haley just shed the fullback, grabbed onto the leg and with with Marcus Allen flying in and delivering the knockout blow, just that moment to me. I haven't stopped watching that play. Like of all the plays in that game, I've been watching the Saquon Barkley last touchdown catch because of Gus's call for it. But I've been rewatching that fourth down stop over and over again because that's just like the, that's just it. That's the moment. That's the moment where you know, man, these kids are a bunch of fighters. They Quick. fought. Uh, I I, I, I censored myself. They fought through, and that is the moment that it all, just everyone, just a collective deep breath. We did it. Uh, a quick sidebar. How many times did you guys? How many times did you guys watch that replay of McSorley throwing that picture perfect wheel to oh. Saquon? 
it's 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 it, there's so many great like obviously the I mean he let's go he throws the pass and Barkley's on the 15 yard line and he yeah. lays it in the bread basket with Barkley like two yards from the back of the end zone Does the that view com- the oh, view man. from behind McSorley from the spider cam that was like ugh. Yeah, it's, I that, just it, yeah. it gives you like goosebumps. What a great, great throw! So that's one of those plays where you look at it, you're like, man, if yeah. this is so much harder than Madden. <laughs> yeah, there was. I was a uh, so my seat was about fifteen or twenty rows back on the Penn State goal line on the Penn State side of the crowd. So I was literally right there watching as Saquon pulled that one in. And uh, we mentioned this in the other pod, but they've tried to do that Saquon wheel route uh, into the corner of the end zone play a few times. And I don't remember it uh, ever working out that well because, you know, some weird little thing ends up happening. McSorley puts a little too much on it or it turns into a jump ball and Saquon just can't get it against the defensive back or whatever happens. That was perfect. Like you saw as that play developed that Saquon had just destroyed whatever poor schmuck was trying to make sure he couldn't catch a football. And McSorley also got lit up. I mean, Chad is the one who tweeted it out. McSorley released that ball when Saquon was at, like, the 15-yard line. It was ridiculous. And it worked out. It was fun. I did a lot of screaming and jumping and hugging of other human beings as it happened. So that was a good time. Uh, If we're talking about the best moment of the year. For me, it is after Penn State won the Big Ten Championship. And to be clear, I don't think Penn State should have made the playoff. Um, I think it would have been really cool. I like making jokes about things uh, on the internet. So, like, if anything comes off as I thought Penn State was one of the four best teams in America, I apologize for that. But Penn State, I probably shouldn't have made the playoff. But after Penn State won the Big Ten Championship and James Franklin was on stage with Joel Klatt and Joel Klatt read through the entire list of accomplishments this team had and he asked Franklin, should you guys be in the playoff? And Franklin was just quiet for like two seconds. Like you could tell he was like thinking of what to say in that exact moment and he managed to come up with the perfect response which was, telling Joel Klatt to repeat himself. And the entire crowd at Lucas Oil Stadium just collectively lost their minds. Because we have talked about Vanderbilt, James Franklin. The crazy, the arrogant, the you know super confident dude who never seemed like he was at Penn State. Like It seemed like he just left that version of himself back at Vandy for whatever reason. And that was really the first time where I felt I was watching the dude who went into every single game as the Vanderbilt head coach, regardless of the opponent, thinking, we're better than these guys because, well, if you're just confident about being better than everyone else, you're confident. So that was awesome. That was the James Franklin I had been waiting to see in just his purest form. And I don't know if I will... uh, I don't know if anything will make me happier than that. Also, one of my friends pointed out uh, that with James Franklin's new thing where he tweets a team's name a million times like over the course of a week, that's the kind of thing that like now that we're winning, we're very happy that he does that because it's super silly and cocky and all that. 
it's awesome. Like, I, I love this pure, uh, just 100% uh, confident version of James Franklin, and I'm very upset that we didn't get him sooner. Probably for circumstances outside of his control. That's okay. Uh, our second to last award, the Robinson comes down with an award for play of the year. This one's tough. I, th- I think I'm going to give it to Saquon Barkley's touchdown to help Penn State beat Minnesota, where he was just, there were three dudes all around him. It looked like he was going to get smothered by someone. And he just, like, at one time made three different dudes miss him. And then he just took off to the end zone, and that was the end of it. And it was fantastic. And for one that turned Penn State season around, uh, I think just getting that win plus uh, Minnesota turned out to be a pretty good team. And we'll talk about them in just one second. Uh, but before then, uh, Nick, let's let's hear yours. What is your Robinson comes down with an award for play of the year winner? Well, again, I'm going to read into what Robinson comes down with it means. And to me, that was the iconic play of that season. So when you think about it that way, it really can't be anything other than the field goal block. I mean, if for so many reasons, number one, because it was it was an incredible play, like the height Marcus Allen got on that jump. But the thought that went into it, because if you read the postgame quotes after he earlier in the game, he hopped the line and missed blocking one by inches. And he talks about how he went and talked to Coach Huff right after and said, what did I do wrong? And he said, well, if they're kicking from this hash mark, we watch the tape and this is where he's going to aim the ball. So he's going he's, to he's kick over the right guard or whatever, right tackle or whatever it was. And you could very clearly see when it came down to that field goal, Marcus Allen adjusted perfectly where he was supposed to go. And it just led to that beautiful, beautiful block. But when we think about this season, sure, we'll think about the Big Ten Championship, absolutely. The first image we'll see is James Franklin holding up that trophy. But if you're talking about the play that, and sure, Irvin Charles' touchdown changed everything, but if Penn State doesn't beat Ohio State, this team's 9-3, and three, which is great, but I mean, what is that, like a number 18 ranking when all is said and done? I mean, there's if you go 9-3 and three with this season... That mean, that still means you lost to all the teams you should have lost to and beat the teams you should have beat, which is great, but doesn't mean a whole lot bowl-wise or perception-wise. So winning that game, that moment, that that is what made this season. So for me, it has to be that. Awesome. Uh, Ty, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, and I, I you know, used this play for the last award, and if I didn't make it clear... I understand that Marcus Allen was the one who blocked the kick and that Grant Hilly was the one who returned it for a touchdown. But um, that to me was, as you said, Nick, the iconic play of the season. That's what made all of this possible. You think about some other teams that lost by 40 or 39 in Penn State's case. Um, Florida State lost very early on to Louisville. And the second they lost that game by the margin they did, everyone said they're out of it. Now, Florida State went on to to lose, right? They, they lost some other games, but even still you lose by that margin. It's very easy to write a team off, especially in this playoff climate. Many people had written Penn state off after they lost to Michigan the way they did. And certainly with the pit loss also on the resume, it, it was impossible at that point to look ahead and see the teams coming up on the schedule and look backwards and, and say, this team has any shot of, 
not only winning the Big Ten, but being somehow, some way in the playoff conversation. That play crystallized a lot of this for Penn State because when Penn State pulled that one off when they went on to beat Ohio State, at that point they had won three straight. No one was quite sure what this was going to be, but that play was really the start of, I think, the national conversation shifting in a manner that people started to take Penn State seriously. I had seen it, I can't tell you how many times over the last couple of weeks about how, oh, Penn State, Penn State's just Iowa from last year. They're just Iowa. They're an overrated team. They're just Iowa, and you know they're going to get shown up against, against Wisconsin. Well, that, clearly that didn't happen, and I feel like that play... Um, that play swayed a lot of people as they looked back and saw the game that Penn State played in the second half. I think it's easy to watch that game back and, and say to yourself, there, there's a lot more than just a flash in the pan here when you're looking at Penn State. Um, that play was really significant just in, in the grand scheme of things and how we, how we kind of define this team in 2016 as a whole. Yeah. I, I mean, you guys are kind of making me feel bad for my decision right now, but thank you very much. Uh, uh, no, I'll, listen, I'll, I'll take the Saquon doing a cool thing over most. Uh, finally, the 2013 Penn State-Michigan four-overtime game award for game of the year. I think there are two choices for this, unless you enjoy watching Rutgers get grounded to dust, in which case there are three choices. Uh, so, Ty, I will let you go first. Uh, which one are you going with? Well, because I went with a moment from the Ohio State game for the last two awards, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go Wisconsin here. Um, and here's why. You know, Penn State always kind of had uh, like a 5% chance of making this college football playoff. And even, even knowing full well that they could beat Wisconsin, people were still kind of leery about really truly considering them for the playoff but after they came back from a 28-7 deficit after they outscored wisconsin 31 to 3 in the final 32 minutes of the game and the manner in which they came back how dramatic that was and how impressive that was things flipped on a dime yeah. all of a sudden you had everyone from kirk herb street to uh you know robert smith and joey galloway you name it a lot of prominent college football Penn, pundits. Penn State's champion, Joey Galloway. Right. A lot of people and pundits suddenly were all about Penn State in this playoff. Yeah. Uh, like, and what did Washington, like, I felt bad for Washington because it was just like, oh, yeah, we're pretty safely in. Oh, wait. Now they don't like us for some reason, even though we just dragged Colorado all across the field. Like, well, oh, it's okay. it's what have you done for me lately? Yeah, you know, and there you could like study psychology, and if you go on a, a trip for a week and it rains the last two days, but was sunny the rest, you're still going to have a bad impression of the trip. Whereas if it's the other way around, you're going to say the trip was the greatest thing ever. And I just think it's like the last thing that happened before the college football playoff committee met. It was fresh in everyone's mind. And just the manner in which it turned the tide in favor of Penn State and really gave them a ton of steam and momentum headed into noon on Sunday when this announcement came down. That, to me, I, I think it's easy to overlook how significant that Wisconsin win was in the grand scheme of the college football playoff thing. Um, it really, truly turned the tide in Penn State's favor, if only for a moment in time where a lot of us started thinking, this could actually freaking happen. 
where yeah. they snatched this number four, number four spot away from from Washington. Now they didn't, and you know we could debate the merits of of that decision on on perhaps another podcast. But certainly, um, uh, the impressive nature with which Penn State won that game and and turned the narrative in their favor to me, I think it's the Wisconsin game. All right, uh, Nick, what about you? I'm very torn because on one hand of the two games that stand out being the Ohio State and the Wisconsin games, I was at the Ohio State game. I was not at the Wisconsin game. So obviously there's already a different feel in that regard for me. Um, <clears throat> but I I think I have to go with the Wisconsin game. The Ohio State game was incredible, but it there there was a degree of... I mean, it, 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 I don't believe that it was luck that Penn State won. Special teams are a part of the game, and they also held down Ohio State's offense like no one else could in that game. But just the the back-and-forth nature, the comeback nature of the Wisconsin game, the fact that it was on the biggest stage the Big Ten can offer, I mean, fair or not, Gus Johnson on the call makes, makes a difference. He's just so exciting listening to him call games. I... It's, I don't know, it just felt like a new level. Like, knowing the playoff was on the line, it's just, everything in that was Penn State-Wisconsin game was just exciting right from the start. Even when Penn State was down, like, you you knew this team had a second half in them, and you knew there was something good coming. We didn't exactly know that yet for the Ohio State game, which may make, may make that more exciting, in your opinion, just the degree of not knowing what was coming next, but... Just the whole aura around that Penn State Wisconsin game was just so, just so exhilarating. Like even just sitting at home watching on my, my television as opposed to being there, I felt like I was there. I felt like I was in that stadium watching Penn State come all, all the way back. And it's I, I'm gonna remember both those games for a long time. But watching the highlights from that Wisconsin game, that that, that still just gets my heart pumping and just gets turn gets man it it does it does things it does yeah. things yeah i was at both and wisconsin was definitely for my money the more it, it was more fun because you know huge comeback penn state's offense was incredible i'm going to say i, I kind of showed my hand a bit i'm going to say rutgers just because that was hilarious um i i can watch penn state beat the <laughs> hell out of rutgers every day and twice on sunday so give me all that goodness and please never stop going in on rutgers james franklin that, so we're done. We're done with our awards. Uh, in the quickest way possible, we're going to... Uh, two questions about bowl games. We are not going to preview them all. We'll save that for probably another pod. First off, the bowl game that not involving Penn State you're most excited for in the Big Ten. Second, the bowl game that you are least excited for in the Big Ten. And you will have two options for that one. We'll do the first one, though. Uh, Nick, which one not involving Penn State are you most excited for? It's close. Between Ohio State, Clemson, and Michigan, Florida State, um, I mean, obviously Ohio State and Clemson has a lot more on the line, but I, Ohio State's good, but they're not playing. I don't know. I feel like they haven't they haven't played particularly exciting football against good teams. I know the Ohio State Michigan game was exciting in and of itself, but Ohio State the team wasn't terribly exciting for the majority of that game. So I'm pretty excited for that Michigan Florida State game aside from the fact that, it, that it's like the bowl of 
insufferable fan bases on social oh, media. Oh, you stole my answer. <laughs> you stole uh, my answer. Yeah, I, I, I that's going to be a really good game. I'm excited. I mean, I'm seeing Dalvin against that Michigan defense this is going to be really cool. Oh, so I, I have to say Capital One. I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, here, here's the thing about bowl season. Outside of the two playoff games, the rest don't mean anything. That's that's been the gripe against the bowl system for years. These are exhibition games, and so I've always been of the mindset that you can only take them that seriously. Like only take them so seriously. Yeah, you can't put too much stock in them, and you need to look for other things to root for. There's going to be a game between uh, who did I see here? Maryland and Boston College. Maybe uh, we're going to go there. Oh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll go there in a minute, Ty. Don't worry. Maybe I stole your thunder. Oh, but you know, there, you did, there, you there's another game thunder, between I like there's another game between like Boise and Baylor. Like you really got to squint to find stuff to be excited about in some of these games. And so, to your point, Nick, the fan base angle for me between Florida State and Michigan is, I think, of paramount interest. These two fan bases are insufferable. <laughs> I've dealt with I've dealt with both of them intimately since we've done our since we've been doing our podcast since 2008. And I can tell you that the mere thought of them killing off each other in this bowl game is is somewhat amusing to me. Um and they're two really good football teams by yes. the way. So on both standpoints I think it's it's pretty interesting and I'm actually looking forward to that one more than I am Ohio State Clemson. Um, I think Clemson beats Ohio State. I think Clemson's a better football team there. Yeah. I'm not excited to watch Ohio State try to pass against the Clemson defense. That could be kind of ugly. So I, you know, I'm I'm obviously interested in that game, but in terms of Big Ten game that I'm most interested in seeing, I, I think Florida State Michigan to me. All right, so let me follow that up with a question for you, Ty. Which comment section are you more afraid to wade into during the lead up to this game? Tom Hawk Nation or M Go Blog? M Go Blog. Okay. M Go Blog. We need to reference M Go Blog. Yeah, and I, I like M Go Blog. I, I, M Go Blog does a good job. And, you know, we've interviewed Brian from M Go Blog a thousand times on our show. So oh, I, I think they run a great site. But, um, yeah, Michigan people this year have been have been at our throats a little bit. So. At least for now, in the moment, I'd, I'd, I'd say Michigan without even blinking. Yeah, the, the comment section and the site itself are two completely different beasts. So, um, yeah. <sighs> but wait, wading into either of those would be, um, would be something else, definitely. Um, I think both those teams, by the way, to make the playoff, and that didn't work out. So, Well, I mean, if Florida State – I mean, Florida State – God, it, maybe things are different if Lamar Jackson doesn't just absolutely ruin them. Maybe they're able to, you know, ride some good vibes if Derwin D- James doesn't get hurt and stuff like that. So th- this is a team that I think it was they were a quiet 9-3, and three, it seemed like, with Clemson being Clemson and Lamar Jackson and Louisville doing some crazy stuff. But, yeah, it's still a really good football team, and they're going to give Michigan all they can handle, I think. I, um, I'm not going to go in that direction. I... I'm super, super, super excited uh, to watch Western Michigan against Wisconsin. West. Oh, you're the only one. I am. Why? Listen. So here's Why? the thing. Here's the thing. One, any chance I get to watch PJ Fleck, I'm excited for. But he's not okay. going to be there. Shut up, Nick. PJ Fleck Fine. is staying at Western Michigan forever. Please, God, let this happen. 
He didn't take the Purdue job, so the only obviously the only job that anyone would want him for. Because for some reason, people thought that wouldn't be a terrible move. But I love watching this Wisconsin team and they're just like boring, grinded out style of football. And I think that's the kind of team that Western Michigan needs to go up against to prove that they can like play with the big boys. You know, like if you they just spread them out and they try and play fast and all that, that's one thing. But if Western Michigan shows it could take that punch in the mouth that a team like Wisconsin can provide, I think maybe that will lead to a few people finally going, hey, you know what? We slept on this team a little bit. We didn't give them the love they deserved. Look at them go out and play a really good Wisconsin team and potentially beat a really good Wisconsin team. And I'd be really, I'm fascinated to see how high they would jump in the situation where they get a win over the number eight team in the country when really the one gripe that most people had about them was, oh, they just haven't played anybody. Uh, Illinois barely qualifies as a football team and Northwestern was still bad at that point. So I'm like, that's something that I think is just really, really fascinating. Um, It's fascinating, but I'm going to say this and I don't want you to take it the wrong way. Oh no, I will. The cotton bowl, the, the cotton bowl people are thrilled because you may be the only one saying that right now outside of Western Michigan. I think Wisconsin's gonna gonna hammer him. I don't think Western Michigan has any answer for Corey Clement. And you know, they've been fun to watch with Zach Terrell and Corey Davis and you know, they can air it out, but I think Wisconsin's just gonna pound the living daylights out of them. Yeah, Provided I, they care about the football game, yeah. I think they're gonna pound the living daylights out of them. Uh, all right. Which is Listen, never a man. given. You count no, out. True. You count out David and watch what happens. Watch what happens when they take on Goliath. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, Fair enough. Now to the. This is the single thing I am the most excited for on this podcast. We talk about the game we are least excited about, and gentlemen, you have two options. And somehow Nebraska against Tennessee in the all the the saddest bowl game of the year somehow involving teams that aren't like six and six is not one of the options. The options are number one. The quick lane bowl on the day after Christmas between Maryland and Boston College. Or four hours before the Rose Bowl, Florida and Iowa are going to play something that vaguely resembles a football game. I like I I said before we uh, started recording we need to like try and figure out which one would suck more. And throughout this entire pod, I have not figured out an answer to that. Like I cannot in good consciousness endorse that a single human being watches a second of either of these games. Um, unless, you know, Iowa finally decides that the only thing they should do is give the ball on every possession to Akram Wadley, and then that would be cool. But, Nick, which game would you do you want to watch less? Okay, well... I'm I'm gonna watch Iowa Florida because I'm a realistic Ugh. person when it comes to football, and I will. Re- I hey, I watched three Rutgers games this year, so but I'm I'm gonna watch Iowa Florida. So I would I would much rather I I would I don't even know how to word that. I would rather not watch Maryland Boston College because there is nothing in that game that I I mean it's even in Detroit. Like it, what what about that game is appealing? All right, I have to see if I can find out who's on the call for that one. Uh, on on a side note, we should have Pat Vint back from Go Iowa Awesome back on to ask that same question about Iowa, Florida. Why oh, should we watch this? Oh God, he won't be able to give us an answer. All right, and we trying. could spend the whole time talking about things that would be more entertaining to watch. 
Yeah, last uh, last like, year it like was paint drying. Yes, last year was called by Dave Neal and Matt Stinchcomb, and the year before was Mark Neely and Ray Bentley. Um, so my guess is ESPN isn't exactly sending uh, their A crew to the Quick Lane Bowl, which is uh, yeah, it's going to be on ESPN. And Nick, without cheating, how much are tickets going for on StubHub right now? What is the cheapest you can get a ticket for to this football game? Hmm. $15. I may know the answer to this. Ty, what's the answer? I was going to say $17. You are both very incorrect. The cheapest ticket In on StubHub. In a good way or a bad way? <laughs> I think it's pretty good. There are 11 tickets available on StubHub to this game. So a booming resale market. And the cheapest one is $96. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Yep. You get to play if you play not if you pay ninety six dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so look here, here's the deal, guys. The Maryland Boston College game is just comically terrible. Yeah. But it's so comically terrible that it's at least comical. You know, you could at least watch that game over a few drinks. What do you say? The day after Christmas. I mean, talk about like a turd in the stocking. But you could at least watch that game with some libations and and laugh at it like it's a bad movie. Florida, Iowa is like desecrating sacred ground because they're playing it at the same <laughs> spot as the national championship. Oh, no. In Raymond James Stadium in Tampa. It's the Outback Bowl, right? Yep. And these are two teams, both of which have a ton of talent. Florida's got more talent than Iowa, but clearly it has not been able to organize its offense. Iowa is just the same Iowa team we've seen for the last 15 years. They play defense, they try to run the football, they can't really throw. These these teams are so alike um, that it's either going to end up 6-4 like we saw Iowa beat Penn State back in 4 or <laughs> it's going to end up oddly as a shootout, one or the other. Um, <laughs> I don't want to watch this game no. at all. I'm, I'm looking at the schedule here. Western Michigan-Wisconsin is up square against Florida versus Iowa. That may be the best news of all for the Cotton Bowl because Western <laughs> Michigan, Wisconsin has absolutely zero national appeal. However, if you're giving me a choice between that game and the Outback Bowl, I'm going Cotton Bowl 100 times. Yeah. Um, the Rose Bowl doesn't come on till later. The Sugar Bowl doesn't come on till later. Um, yeah, if you're off from work, as everyone is, on Monday, January 2nd, and you've got options at 1 p.m., you're going to go... You're probably gonna go Cotton Bowl, and I know I'm going Cotton. I'm not. I don't want any part of that Florida Iowa game. Ugh. So, uh, two quick things. One, uh, I Ty, how can you expect Florida to have an offensive potential offensive explosion when Jim McElwain is going to be busy getting settled into his office in Eugene, Oregon? Oh, look at you! <laughs> look at me! Look at me! I'm fe- feeling feisty today. Uh, okay. only, only if Pat Narduzzi doesn't take the job. Oh my God, that's an outstanding mix of a person who has no business coaching at Oregon in terms of what he believes in. And Nerducky. Nerducky, yes. And two, and far more importantly, can either of you guys name what the bowl matchup was last year in the stadium where the national title game took place? The one prior to the national title game. Hmm. You're talking about that would be the Cotton Bowl because they played it in Arlington, right? Uh, are you sure about that? 
I was there, um, but I don't remember <laughs> what I had for breakfast, so I can't I can't remember much of anything. <laughs> so the national title game uh, took place at the University of Phoenix. Stadium. Oh no, it was in Arizona. Oh, it was in Arizona. Arizona. Sure. Okay. And the the I was gonna say I remember hearing stories about the the SB Nation Airbnb house. Oh, haunted. that's right. Roger yeah. Sherman and I cracked a windshield. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Ty, once we're done with this podcast, you're going to tell us that story. Uh, but, yeah. but the game took place at University of Phoenix Stadium where the, that fiesta, was a fiesta, where the fiesta Bowl was, Ty. And Ty, who played yeah. in the Fiesta Bowl last year? Uh, Ohio State, Notre Dame. Yes, yeah. sir. Yeah. So that the uh, lead-up to the national championship game last year uh, featured... Yeah, like that was far more appealing, obviously, in terms of everything than Florida against uh, Iowa, which is that they're the opening act this year. And yeah, for for me, it's that. Like at least with Maryland, you know that they're going to try and do some like really silly stuff because they understand they have nothing to win or lose in that game. So they'll just be like, "Yeah, let's have our Arkansas State offensive coordinator do." Well, fun Arkansas State stuff. Will it work? Probably not, but they're going to try it out anyway, which is going to make it interesting. Florida. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. See, and, and that's the thing is like, it's a matter of expectations. You know, like, did anyone really expect any kind of explosion from Maryland with a first year coach or a Boston College team that hasn't had an offense since Steve Adazio got there? I didn't, but. Jim McElwain's an offensive-minded guy. Yeah. He had a ton of talent on offense, even though we weren't sure of who the quarterback was going to be all year. And look, that's not to say that we expected fireworks from Iowa on offense, but we certainly expected a little bit more than what we got this season. So I just think the Outback Bowl is a game of failed expectations all across the board, and it just makes it borderline unwatchable. Yes. uh, Speaking of... uh you know, failed expectations. Uh, Ty, I hope you had a good time on this edition of the podcast. Yes, thank you for, for the invite. Not a problem. Thanks for coming on. We appreciated it. Uh, Nick, thank you for, you know, clearing your busy schedule of napping to come on, you lazy, lazy man. I am a busy person, sir. Right, right, whatever. So, yeah, that's, as you can tell, that's it for this edition of the podcast. As always, uh, follow us on our social media channels like Roar Lions Roar on uh facebook follow us on twitter buy shirts we got some we got some new gear out the shirt that we have 16 champs 16 champs it is a beautiful beautiful shirt highly recommend that you go out and purchase that one at, along with every other shirt we have keep reading the site keep sharing things that were posted on the site make sure you're subscribing on itunes on soundcloud on google play you're showing us some love on there with some reviews and whatnot Give Ty a follow on Twitter at Ty Hildenbrandt. Good college football follow and just a good guy overall. I mean, he's coming on a podcast. Thank and you. Talk, he's talking for, he came onto a podcast and on hour one minute 15, he was talking about Iowa and Florida football. I mean, come on, what more can you want? So for all of that, thank you for listening to this edition of the podcast. For my co-host, Nick Pollock, I am Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone. Produce, he never dies.